all the feels on this one. Because that's what the science says. Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of Real Everything. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out. Let's talk about what this looks like in real life. Facts do not have opinions. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of thepaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health. Just don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Science is true whether or not you believe in it. Self-love is really about self-respect and acceptance. Hey, Whole View listeners, we're excited to present a unique show for you this week. We have, as you've heard us talk about before, a Patreon and a few weeks ago, we did a live Q&A where we invited part of our Patreon fam to join us if they could and ask us questions live. We took them first come, first serve, and there's a broad range of topics for you. We did take out a little bit just to keep it special for our Patreon fam, um, but if you enjoy this show, we know that you'll enjoy the Patreon. And if the Patreon isn't something that you can do, this is a way for you to still get the benefit of questions that listeners are asking. Because I think a lot of our listeners are going to be interested in this. What do you think, Sarah? I think our listeners are going to love it. And I hope that you join our Patreon fam. We're going to be doing uh, more of these Q&As with our Patreon family. Um, And so if you join, then you get to ask your question next time. And we won't be publishing all of these live. This is kind of a one-time thing so that you can know what you're going to get over there and hopefully join us. But if not, enjoy. Welcome to our Q&A. If you're listening or watching this back live, thank you. And for those of you who are attending, Welcome again. Uh, We're super excited to do this for the first time. And we've been brainstorming ideas of how we can engage with you, our Patreon fam, and we thought this would be a fun thing to do. So thank you for being here. Thank you, Sarah, for being willing to give it a try and um, bear with us as we just have fun. You know, this isn't, we haven't read any of these questions ahead of time. So um, some of them we might have to come back to, but we're excited to be able to connect with you like we would have been able to do on a book tour. No hugs, just virtual. <laughs> I'll just do high fives. High fives. It's a little bit easier than hugs. Elbows, elbows. Okay. Kristen asks, does the high transmissibility impact outdoor risks, specifically exercising outdoors in neighborhoods where you are passing people? And I just want to, for anybody who might be listening to this, you know, 10 years from now, we're referring to COVID (laughs) (laughs) and the Delta variant. variant. Yeah. Um, So right now there does seem to be increased transmissibility outside from the Delta variant compared to the wild type or the alpha, which was dominant before Delta came and swept across the entire globe, taking over everything. Um, But relative risk is still much lower than indoors. So with the original, there was about a 5% risk, like relative. So outdoors was about 5% of the risk of indoor transmission, so about 120th. And with Delta, it looks like it's more like 110th. Again, as we covered in our show, data is, you know, still still coming in. Um, so all of these numbers are kind of 
uh, fuzzy around the edges. Um, but uh, this is why, like, along with the recommendation to wear masks indoors, regardless of vaccination status, there is also the recommendation to wear masks outdoors in crowded areas. Um, passing people in a neighborhood when you're fully vaccinated is not considered a high risk activity. So that would, under current guidelines, fall under, you don't need to worry about a mask. Um, and I can tell you that I'm wearing a mask when I work out at my gym, even though I'm in a separate corner from everybody else, even though all the doors are open and all the fans are on, but I'm not wearing a mask to walk my dog, even though I might pass somebody on the trails, if that's helpful. That's about what we're doing as well. Um, and I would say to just from us personally, like our pod has opened a little bit to where we were a year ago because we know people in the neighborhood who've been vaccinated and therefore we feel a little more comfortable spending time like with them. So we might have, you know, like one or two friends in the neighborhood that we feel comfortable with. But beyond that, like we know that they're following the same things that we're doing. And the for us, the risk is so much lower because we know that all the families have been vaccinated. So, I mean, it, it's just, I think it depends on your personal situation, how much you trust the people. And we didn't have a pod at all before because Matt was an essential worker. And so because we'd already had it, we could have been shedding and not knowing. It's a little bit different now that I think, you know, we're all vaccinated. So I um, also kind of things will change as more variants come. I mean, there's already more discussion happening since we recorded that podcast even I think a week later, Sarah, like when it came out, there was like new news and information about Delta and all that kind of stuff. So there was, there was a new study that came out the Friday yeah. that the <laughs> actual like podcast went live that I was like, oh, that would have been perfect to have. Um, I think it's one of the things that's really interesting about covering COVID as I mean, when we cover COVID on the show, we're almost taking on a like science journalist role in that perspective. And to discuss emerging science in that way, um, and especially not like live on TV, which I think would be a little bit easier because then you could be like, well, I was right when I was live. <laughs> you know, we typically record our podcasts Tuesday mornings and then they're live for everybody on Fridays. So even that three-day delay with something that is um, just our, our knowledge on COVID is expanding, but also with the variants, the situation is changing so rapidly, it can be really hard to stay on top of all of it. Okay, change of topic, you ready? Yeah. Narissa asks, I used to use collagen protein powder for after workouts because I often do the midday and don't wanna eat a full meal afterwards, but I know you now only recommend using the one company that makes bone broth powder. And I'm just wondering if there's any other healthy options for protein powders, whey protein powder or pea protein or anything else. Can I jump in on this one? Yeah, sure. I'll um, just have a sip of tea. <laughs> okay, so I used to use a bunch of protein powders when I was lifting really heavy. Um, for the definition of really heavy, I mean, I would have three hour sessions. It was something that I had to fuel myself through or else, you know, it wouldn't have had the results on the other side, right? I had to feed my muscles. Um, and the protein powders that I found worked best for me at the time were 
beef protein powders. And I know that they're more difficult to find and they often have stevia in them. I don't know, Sarah, if you found a brand that you like, but I know that they're out there. And um, BCAAs. BCAAs is something that you can get plain and you can add to anything you want. You can make your own smoothie with that bone broth broth powder with those BCAAs is probably what I would do today. Um, and I would add a banana, um, because it gives you the carbs and then you don't have some of the other things that you might want to avoid in a protein powder, but you can get, um, what your, the results that you're looking for. Um, I personally did not do well on anything with whey. Like I would try protein bars and different kinds of things and uh, clean whey and grass fed. And it didn't matter. I did not do well with whey at all. And um, pea protein does not sit well with me. It's I, I can eat real peas, but pea protein is um, causes a little digestive distress. So um, do you have other things that you use or recommend, Sarah? Um, yeah, we use a organic pea protein that does work for everybody in this house. Um, the brand I cannot remember, but I just get it off Amazon. Um, I think the thing with the entire protein powder industry that was really illuminated to me as I was doing the, the research into how the collagen extraction process has become super industrialized over the last decade is that all of the protein extraction processes are really industrialized. And so that USDA organic is a really important label to look for with protein powders. It doesn't exist with uh, collagen or, or gelatin generally um, because it's so challenging to get, like the pastures have to be organic that the uh, animals are on. So it's a, it's a much more rigorous process and a lot more variables that are hard to control for those farmers. So we don't see it very often with uh, sort of the meat-based We'll call that meat-based hide typically, um, or in the case of Paleo Valley, it's it's bones. Um, so they're able to get 100% grass-fed bones. It's not organic because, again, that process for getting USDA organic certification for grass-fed meat is very, very challenging. So, um, so the there is USDA organic options for pea protein and for whey protein, and that would be the thing that I would look for because a lot of the the vast majority of the chemicals that we're concerned about, things like hexane and the extraction, are not allowed under organic process. So that is the, the thing that I would say for any protein powder. Um, and the reason why we support Paleo Valley is that we know that they are doing third-party testing of every single batch to make sure that there's no contamination. And one of the insider scoops is for, for them um, is that they've actually, like, turned back batches at the factory because it didn't pass their rigorous standards on their third third party um, testing. And they've said, oh no, we're not taking this batch. And that's meant real challenges for them with you know, backordered products, for example. But that is to me like to be able to make that decision when you know now you're not going to sell as much because you're going to have that product on back order. Like that is the integrity of that company, which is why we love them so much. Yeah, I would I remember getting the email from them when we were like, 
what, what's going on with inventory? And they explained to us that it was a quality issue and they're, they apologized. And we were like, honestly, if that's the issue, we're happy to hear it because that is the standard that we were hoping for. I will also say from a collagen perspective, if I'm putting something in a drink, I'm not a big fan of the bone broth powder, just like plain and tea or coffee. Um, and for that, I did relatively vet it's not the same level as you're going to get from Paleo Valley, the Thrive um, Collagen. So they did come back and say that they use, in the Collagen podcast, we talk about like, this is ideal and this is not ideal. Um, this is what to be worried about. This is, you know, okay. All of the things where we would want them to say, yes, we're doing this. No, we're not doing that were the answers that we were looking for, but they're not doing that testing that Paleo Valley is doing to take it one step further. So if you are looking for a true collagen, that would be an option. But I would also say that collagen is not something that I would alone look to for a protein if I were working out. And I don't know if you want to like, how, how deep you want to go into that, Sarah, maybe just like, I'm, if I open the door for you, I know it's going to be Pandora's box, but from an amino acid profile and all of that kind of stuff, it just, it what you, I could add to it, but it wouldn't be enough for me alone. Yeah. It's missing a couple of important amino acids for muscle building post-workout. Um, so I think methionine and tryptophan, especially, um, which are amino acids that you would get from most other types of protein, but you could mix with like an organic pea protein and probably balance that out really well. Awesome. Okay. For those who have joined, I was trying to type it and then I I don't want to be distracted. I want to listen and engage. So for those that have joined a little after we started, hi, welcome. Um, if you have questions that you'd like us to answer, please use the Q&A. And um, also you're welcome to use the chat to talk to each other and, and stuff like that if you're here live. So, so glad to see more of you joining. Thank you for being here. Um, and hello, Wendy. Wendy said hello. So I'm going to I'm going to personally give Wendy a shout out. <laughs> I'm waving my hands. When this eventually becomes a, an audio file, yeah, this will not translate it. at all. You but. won't see your hand talking. <laughs> okay, another one from Narissa. You, Sarah, you recommended the tooth powder from Primal Life Organics, but I noticed it doesn't have fluoride in it. And I thought you had said we should use some fluoride for our teeth. In our case, we filter out most of our tap water. So I just wanted to clarify what is best because the natural toothpaste to use that does have fluoride in it also has a couple other ingredients that I know you had said were not ideal. So I do have a very in-depth article on my website about oral care products that goes into toothpastes and tooth powders and all the different ingredients, as well as mouthwashes and floss, um, and like why oral hygiene habits are helpful um, and why a lot of conventional toothpaste ingredients are gross and icky. I don't think I use those words. I think I use the technical words. Um, and so I do like the tooth powder because baking soda is very, very good for, um, I think because it reduces the pH in our saliva and the saliva pH is so important for mineralization of the teeth. Um, but it's been shown in studies to be very good at reducing cavities and then adding in minerals helps to, um, basically provide the minerals that also a healthy diet will provide in our saliva. So our teeth are constantly remodeling no matter what we're doing. Um, so the idea is we want to make sure that that balance is at least equal and not uh, overly weighted in the erosion side of that 
chemistry equation. Um, and so the clays in there can be very, very helpful for providing those minerals, but it's certainly not the only way to go. There are a lot of other natural tooth powders and toothpastes that um, I really like. So a brand um, that I also really like is called Carry Free, and they have... Um, they have a they have hydroxyapatite for their minerals, and then they also normalize pH, and then they're also xylitol based, and xylitol is pretty good for reducing cavities as well. And they have a fluoride free option, and they have a fluoride containing option. I think the note with fluoride, there's lots of studies showing that it's very good for mineralizing the teeth, but we definitely want to make sure we're not consuming it because systemic fluoride can cause. Uh, not just fluoridosis type problems, but there's some evidence that it accumulates in the pineal gland and the brain and can potentially impact melatonin production as we age. So uh, that's a more studies needed to really understand that system. But for me, that's why I didn't let my kids have fluoridated toothpaste until, until they were really old enough to spit well. Um, and, then, and then we switched. Yeah. Yeah. I use a fluoride one in, I think it's the evening and a non-fluorinated one in the morning. Like I just have two in the drawer and I just grab and trade off. Um, so, okay. Really the most important thing, just to add one more, the most important thing is to wipe off the, the tartar by brushing. That is actually the most important thing for supporting tooth health and a healthy diet will, and you know, like a healthy diet will mean a good oral microbiome and saliva with the right minerals in it and the right pH. So the most important thing is just actually the brushing. Um, so that's actually the, the more important piece of the whole equation. Now I've become paranoid about my teeth as we talk. <laughs> like, eh, I... Something that happens as you get to be about 36. This is the point in the show where we also remind you we're not medical professionals and we're giving you our own personal experience, but can I give medical advice? This show is also sponsored by us. If you could see me, I just did this grand gesture, opening my <laughs> arms like you. <laughs> oh, it's embarrassing. <laughs> as a thank you for your patience as we work through the technical side of getting everything right, being on this new platform and leveraging all the different tools that we have, we want to give a shout out to you, our awesome listeners. You're the reason this podcast has lasted this long and your patience is amazing. We cannot thank you enough for your support over these years. Each review, share, and referral has made a real impact on people's lives. As a reminder, if you want to support the show, you can do so by getting shows like this one from our Patreon, plus our ad-free bonus episodes every single week where we share what we really feel about that week's topic, all available at patreon.com slash thewholeview. It's $5 a month, and there's even a discounted yearly subscription if you'd like. You can also support us by switching to safer self-care at beautycounter.com slash Stacey Toth or choosing me, Stacey Toth, at checkout. I'm always happy to work with you one-on-one -on -one for consults as well. Just email me, Stacey at realeverything.com. And you can support us by expanding your knowledge with my Dr. Sarah's digital resources, including eBooks and online courses on the autoimmune protocol and gut health, as well as my imprint books. You can find them on my website, thepaleomom.com and click on shop in the top right corner. We, we love, love our, our listeners. listeners. Ah! <laughs>
<laughs> I'm so embarrassed. Why are you talking me into these things? Oh. Um, okay. So Felicia has, uh, I think, three questions related to COVID and the vaccine. Do you want to, how do you want, you want me to read all three in a row? Yeah, let's let's first first asked. Okay. First okay. answered. That's that's the rule we said at the beginning. I know. It's gonna be a challenge for me because I should just type really one. quickly. She just was like on it. Here's all my <laughs> questions. I came prepared. It's in a Word document. All I had to do was copy and paste. <laughs> Good honor. It's just a lot for me to read. Okay. The asymptomatic transmissibility rate with vaccinated individuals, oh, is the asymptomatic transmissibility rate with vaccinated individuals high enough that we should assume anyone can have it, especially concerning our unvaccinated children? For those of our children under five years of age that will not be able to receive the vaccine until sometime next year, should we still social distance outdoors, even from vaccinated relatives who wear masks in public, including planning on avoiding indoor holiday activities later this year? I can tell that you want to answer those questions, but I have more for you. So just, wait, wait. you ready? Okay. Are we really going to, are we just going to pile them all on? I think it's better to take it one. <laughs> Okay, go ahead. <laughs> I think if we try to pile them all on, then I'll forget a piece um, as yeah. we go, even though I literally have it right in front of me. Um, so the asymptomatic transmissibility rate with the Delta variant in vaccinated individuals, we don't super know uh, the answer to that question. So um, what we do know is that even with asymptomatic uh, breakthrough infections, right? So that's an infection uh, I've seen a lot of criticism of the word breakthrough, which I kind of, I kind of understand that it's causing a lot of confusion because it sounds bad. Um, it sounds like the vaccines aren't working, but of course, this was always expected that there would be some infections, even in fully vaccinated individuals. Um, so we know that they have a viral load similar in the nasal pharynx compared to unvaccinated individuals. We don't know how much of that virus has been killed or deactivated by the immune system. And uh, we do have, there are lots of like evidence now of um, spread from vaccinated individuals, but the concern is higher in breakthrough infections that are symptomatic. So that seems to be the, the predominant concern as opposed to asymptomatic breakthrough infections. But again, you know, Delta is still so new that that's um, there's a there's a lot of little like cartoon question marks around that um, that answer. Like, really, we need more data to be able to say conclusively how um, how much we should assume everybody around us is carrying it and potentially contagious. Um, so uh, for right now, I think you know the bigger concern is certainly unvaccinated people. Um, and people with symptoms. And so for, you know, kids um, under the age of five who probably won't be able to get the vaccine until early 2022, I think um, the same types of procedures that we've had for this last year and a half with outdoor play, um, you know, making sure that uh, like we can have a pod, um, it can be unmasked and distanced or it can be masked and close up um, outdoors. And that's how we've sort of been, been working with our kids. Um, and I would say, you know, when it comes to hanging out with vaccinated relatives who are wearing masks, like I think you've got so many layers of protection there, the protection of the vaccine, 
the protection of the mask, the protection of the bubble, even if the bubble's a little bit loose <laughs> around the edges. Um, you know, I, I definitely think you can, you can certainly think about holiday activities. They're obviously much safer outdoors compared to indoors. You can do things like ask your relatives to all get tested before getting together so that you can catch those asymptomatic infections. And then that poor person has to miss out, but that's, you know, that's an okay trade to not infect your relatives. Um, so there's lots, I think there's lots of ways to navigate this and, and keep those, those young kids safe. Yeah, I agree that either quarantining or taking a test beforehand, like taking a test and then quarantining for even just 48 hours before a holiday is a totally reasonable thing that I think a lot of grandparents would be willing to do for their four-year-old grandchild. Like just being able to have the comfort of that holiday and taking a little extra protection, I think it won't feel normal, but at least for me, it, you know, but it would mean so much more to have that safety and to be with one another, if that makes sense. So we're so much further along in terms of our knowledge and ability to test and all that stuff. It's just a matter of like, what do the holidays look like? We're at August and where we were from three months ago is we're very different. And so, you know, where could we be during Thanksgiving and Christmas um, might be different as well. So I think that also kind of plays into all of that in terms of making sure that the vaccines still protect and we're still able to test properly and that the variants don't kind of start to outsmart us. That's when all of it changes again. Right, Sarah? I don't yeah. want to, yeah, okay. Next one. Yeah. But we're like, we don't want to think about that, but it's, I have to put that out there. Okay. Due to the increased viral load in the respiratory tract, does this mean individuals are leaving more viral load on surfaces? For example, groceries, packages, door handles. Should we continue to resume, should we continue slash resume wiping down groceries and avoiding outdoor playgrounds where people would be touching or is the true risk transmission through the air? Yeah, so that was one of the biggest ways the science sort of evolved the, the latter half of 2020 was understanding the relative risk of transmission through uh, formites, so surfaces versus airborne. And so what we've learned on the airborne side is that um, the aerosols can build up in the air in indoor environments and concentrate over time. And that six feet is probably not enough. Um, and even, even before it was sort of like 15 minutes cumulative over 24 hours within six feet, there were plenty of cases of people catching COVID with much less space or much less time or much more space or much less time rather. Um, and now we know with Delta, there've been cases of, you know, in a, a quarantine center. And I think Australia, there was one guy who had it and the next guy in the next room didn't, they pulled, got their breakfast trays around the same time in the hallway and the guy who didn't caught it. And that was found through contact tracing because it was two days before the end of his quarantine and he ended up bringing it and infecting some, some friends. So um, definitely with Delta indoors, in the case of unvaccinated people, we know that it can spread very, very quickly. Um, and in large part, because there's so much more viral shedding. The relative risk for surfaces was about one ten thousandth of the risk of airborne. So it was worse to walk past somebody in the store, uh, even with two layers of masks on, than it was to touch something that they had touched. Um, so it's very, very, very low risk. And yes, probably with a higher viral load, people who are shedding virus are probably leaving more on surface. But even if you uh, 10x that 
risk, which you probably aren't actually, you're still talking about one one thousandth of the risk of the airborne transmission. So I can tell you that I have not gone back to washing all of my groceries. That is not something that I have done. We do not either, but we do, if we've gone somewhere, for example, to the grocery store with masks on, or in your case, like a playground, and there's a lot of other people, um, and you were either wearing or not wearing a mask outside, depending, um, I would definitely still make sure that you're thoroughly washing your hands and sanitizing before you take off your mask. Like, to me, that's the more important thing than, um, like avoiding surfaces and wiping down surfaces and all that kind of stuff. If we just remember that after we've been someplace where a lot of people are, where, droplets might have landed on something or someone touched something and something touched something else, especially with kids when they're picking their noses and putting their hands in their mouth and all that kind of stuff. Um, Is that not normal for adults? (laughs) If they wash their hands, um, then that is going to, what did they say? Like 99.9% reduce it with hand soap, Sarah? Yeah. I don't, I don't think it was that high, but it was, (laughs) it was uh, 90% or something. That was that influenza study we covered a million years ago. Um, Yeah. So we're, we still, when you walk in the house, you wash your hands here. We still have hand sanitizer in everywhere. When I pick up my kid from the bus stop, I, she wears her mask all the way on the bus. She gets into my car. I squeeze like two full tablespoons of hand sanitizer, which she now calls the paper cut finder, which I think is epically awesome um and then she'll be like oh yep got a paper cut she hand sanitizes and then takes off her mask so um i definitely think that you know thinking about that mask as maybe containing virus you definitely want to um like clean your hands before you take it off so you're not messing with it and then clean your hands after so then she still has to wash her hands for 30 full seconds when we come in the come in the door so um yeah good good call on the hand washing stacy all right, one last one. Um, and then the next question is super fun. So I promise you'll get a little, <laughs> get a little reprieve. All right. Um, the last one right for right now. I don't know. I can't see what's what's below. Felicia says, with more viral load, are the droplets lasting in the air longer? Should we be concerned if our unvaccinated children are in a home, for example, of a vaccinated grandparent who may not be as diligent with the use of a well-fitted mask, even if the grandparent is not there? So the um, dynamics of how droplets like float or sink is not related to how many viruses are inside that droplet. It's related to the size of the droplet um, and the airflow. So um, so that, that piece is not something that's going to change with Delta. So finally something. Um, so in general, right, the smaller the droplet, the the longer it can float, the larger the droplet, the the far the shorter a distance it's going to go before it sinks to the ground. Um, so one of the ways to to get around this, if we're concerned, is to open windows or turn on a fan and just make sure that there's or both ideally, and just make sure that there's good air circulation. So that air circulation will stop those aerosols from concentrating because they get moved around so much. So if you were entering. Like if you had a small child and you were entering the home of um, a vaccinated grandparent who hadn't been wearing a mask the whole time in their own home, Mm -hmm. um, would you feel comfortable with your child going in without a mask, like with a mask? How would you approach that? I would probably ask 
that grandparent to put on a mask 15 or 20 minutes before we arrive. Or otherwise, ask my kid to wear a mask for 15 or 20 minutes after we get there to have that buffer time. I am pulling that 15 or 20 minutes number out of some very, not the sign, not the way that science is supposed to be interpreted, um, but just to give that little bit of time um, to allow any particular, you know, any aerosols that might be in the air to actually settle. Yeah. Deborah actually signed off. She had raised her hand and I was planning on bringing her on to ask her question, but assuming that she will watch this back later, we'll go ahead and answer her question. Um, she asked, um, people are saying that the Delta variant isn't that bad because it isn't killing anyone. Um, I know that you, you have a differing opinion, but maybe we could bring some data into that answer. Uh, it's unequivocally false. Um, we are now the fourth, third or fourth highest mortality rate due to COVID in the world. Um, 700 to 1,000 Americans are, are dying every day. The vast majority of them are unvaccinated. So part of the difference in how many people are dying every day to how many new cases there are every day that we're seeing now compared to the last big wave similar to this last fall that sort of started in like October, November, um, and then peaking in January. The difference is that half of the country is vaccinated and the people who are vaccinated are uh, ex you know, very, very well protected from severe disease and death. There are of course some exceptions, but um, the vast majority of the people who are dying from COVID right now are unvaccinated. So we're still, again, 700 of 1,000 Americans are dying every day um, from the Delta variant. Um, so I think, you know, saying that the Delta variant isn't killing anyone is just disproven by the data. I would say the wording that someone chooses to cherry pick that information is also misleading because the truth of it is the Delta variant isn't more deadly, but it is more contagious. Actually, that's, I, I'm going to, it's not, it's not actually true. It's about that's what people were saying for a really long time. Yeah. Right? So like, the, the newest data is that it, uh, it is about twice as deadly. Interesting. So it let's, let's just set that aside for a second. Cause that's, was a little brain explosion because I have so many questions like well is that because of the increased cases but you're saying like case to case you have in uh, and that's comparing unvaccinated to unvaccinated right yeah so but let's just say I think this misinformation comes from the original way that the delta was posed to people which is that it's not more problematic for for you more than the original disease was it's more easy to get it's higher transmissibility and so if you've heard us talk about like conspiracy theories and misinformation right they took a grain of truth of what that was and then they extrapolated that to say it isn't killing anyone which is not at all the same thing as what we just said because we know that the original was definitely killing people so um anyway i hope that's helpful and um I'm sorry we missed Deborah before she popped off, but we have many more questions to go through. So um, Wendy asks, Wendy, who said hi earlier. Hi again, Wendy. Wendy again. <laughs> My teens are COVID vaccinated, so I bit the bullet, but I'm still feeling concerned, RE, long-term impact, say 10 years down the road. Is there anything in the science that can give peace around about the future for my kids? Anything specific to mRNA vaccines that can lead us to conclude my kids' futures are safe? Thank you. 
Can I just kind of start this off a little bit for you? I will say as a vaccine hesitant person who heard about a, you know, temporary approval of a rushed vaccine, you can't see me, but I'm using quotation marks when I used all of those. That's how I came to our, our original discussion about vaccines before we had seven shows of them, I think at this point. <laughs> I think it's seven. Um, <laughs> and I remember your original explanation of MR. NA vaccines giving me such tremendous peace. So even if you listened to it the first time, Wendy, and you felt comfortable enough to have your teens vaccinated, you might want to go back and listen to that again to remind you of, of why you made that decision and how very long the, R, the mRNA um, has been being tested for different various things and what the reason for it originally coming about was. And I actually saw yesterday in social media that they have human trials of an HIV AIDS vaccine with using the mRNA vaccine now. And one of the things you talked about, Sarah, was how we would start to see more vaccines come out more quickly now that we've mastered the art of this, that we can do it more. So I don't know if there's something specific you want to speak to that, but I, I know as someone who had those same feelings myself, going through the understanding of the history of that and realizing it's not just some rushed thing that we just figured out um, was, was very helpful to my own decision. Um, I want to add two things. I think one is that they have done these studies looking at clearance of the mRNA as well as clearance of the um, lipid nanoparticles that make up the, the envelope around the mRNA to deliver it. Um, and those are completely cleared from the body within a few weeks. Um, the mRNA is shorter, right? It's it's only lasting, you know, on the order of days to a week. Um, and then the lipid nanoparticles are effectively cleared um, in three-ish, four-ish weeks. Um, and so that has, that if there's nothing left from that vaccine, it's really hard to make any kind of argument for we should be worried about, right? Like the way that the immune system is being activated from those vaccines is the same way it would be activated from a virus. Um, and so again, there's sort of no, there's no, there's nothing in how these work that would make me feel even remotely worried about how the vaccine might have a long-term impact, but I am very worried about the long-term impact of COVID. I am extremely worried about the long-term impact of COVID. We now have studies showing that it impacts the um, fluidity dynamics of blood cells. We have studies showing that it dysregulates the sympathetic nervous system. So some people have overactive fight or flight, some people have uh, underactive fight or flight, which can manifest as different symptoms. It's causing depression and anxiety. It's causing cogn cognitive deficits. So there was a really big study just published out of the UK. They happened to start the study in January 2020 and then went, oh, wait, Instead of just, we were just going to look at how cognition was, you know, relative to things like age and you know, location and, and, you know, work and job, right? Like we're now we're going to look at COVID and they showed even in people who had mild and asymptomatic cases, a big reduction in cognition 
that appears thankfully to be temporary, but that means that people are walking around for months with brain fog after a mild case of COVID. Um, we see the increase in markers um, that are early markers of Alzheimer's. We see mark changes in the immune system that can look like cancer. There's a lot of researchers who are worried that in 10, 20 years, we're going to have this like second pandemic of long-term health effects from COVID. And I don't want to like scare anybody who's had COVID because this isn't something that you can control and it's not something to worry about. But I think it's really important to have that perspective when we're talking about the extremely low risk of an adverse effect from these vaccines. These are the safest vaccines that have ever been developed and an incredibly um, challenging virus that may have long-term implications for our health. Like when we compare one versus the other, it's it's a no-brainer that the vaccines are our safe way to prevent all of these other fuzzy things that we don't even fully understand what could happen in 10 years. Yeah, I'm glad you kind of dove into it from that perspective. And you saw me, if you were physically watching, raising my hand, because those are things that I've been struggling with, with someone with long hauler, long haul COVID, I think they call it now, um, for so long. And um, for me, if I hadn't experienced all of that and my, I would be thinking inevitably it's your, your body is going to come in contact and fight this one way or another, the way that it's spreading, the way that the variants are going, the way that it's just, we keep having surges, right? It, it's not looking the way that it was three months ago in terms of it will, it will leave. We're, we're faced with it coming back. And so if I were a parent wondering, you know, which is, what should I do to me if I'm saying, well, one way or another, my child is going to be exposed to this because I, I do, my own personal opinion is that that is inevitable. And, um, even in a, in an area that doesn't have a lot of outbreaks, right? Like I just, I personally, I'm a little bit of a worry wart anyway. And so I would just feel that way. And so I'm like, for me, there's definitely um, a lesser of two evils. And that's the choice that, you know, I, I would make. And so I think it's one thing to say like, oh, did I make the right decision? What's the long impact, blah, blah, blah. But the other thing is maybe focus on, did you keep your family safe from getting the virus and being hospitalized or dying? Because you're seeing a lot of people who advocated for, um, uh, medical freedom and not wanting to take the vaccine, which everybody has their right and ability to do. But what is heartbreaking is to read these articles and to hear the people ask as they're being put on a ventilator, can I get the vaccine now? Or you read about them dying. And the, that I would never want to be my child. And so as a parent, as much as even if there is something um, I know that based on the data that we have about COVID and the long-term effects that it can have on your heart, your brain, and major components of your body, um, I, I wouldn't want to choose that. So that's just my personal, as someone who was hesitant, that's kind of the decision that um, became more easy for me to make. So my five-month-old baby has been diagnosed as having, oh, this is from Rachel, has been diagnosed as having eczema. He has been prescribed steroids, antihistamines, and steroid, steri-paste bandages. Oh, that sounds like it's really painful. I'm gutted as I have eczema. When I follow a strict 
strictly AIP diet, my eczema disappeared. I'm more relaxed now and have some eczema flares, particularly if I have sugar or dairy. The baby is exclusively breastfed. Is it possible improving my diet would improve his eczema? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> 100%. Yeah, I mean, the, the fast answer is yes. Um, some things to consider beyond removing your trigger foods again um, would be really working on gut microbiome. So um, some probiotics or fermented foods or both um, could go a long way. Um, checking your vitamin D status because vitamin D is really, really important for skin barrier health. So making sure that you have enough vitamin D can be very, very helpful. Um, and then remembering that eczema is um, from both sides. So um, looking at really, really nourishing creams for both you and your baby, um, things that have vitamin A, vitamin D. We actually did a whole show um, on this relatively recently. I do not remember the number because I don't remember the numbers of our show. I, re I refer to that show all the time. It was called... Um like the science of the skin barrier or yeah. dry, dry winter skin issues. It might the be dry skin show. Under. Yeah. Um, uh, so that would be the one to go back and listen to for recommendations on, on the skincare side of it. Um, but definitely there's a really, really strong link, um, between the gut microbiome and eczema specifically. Um, and then ask your pediatrician about infant probiotics. That would be my next, my next big thing. Um, and you could even have your baby's vitamin D levels checked as well, um, because vitamin D does tend to drop off after birth. Um, and so a vitamin D, um, they make like little liquid vitamins, even for breastfed babies. Um, that might be a really good idea too. I agree. And I actually was passing that on to my children through my breast milk. So I can tell you 100%, um, it can help. And it can also, if you're, you or someone, you know, has a baby with digestive issues. One of the first things you hear people say is, you know, reduce your chocolate, reduce different kinds of things that could be your cucumber. That's one I remember. Stop eating cucumber. Never worked. Never worked. I always heard broccoli and, um, cauliflower, but those never irritated my kids. So, um, of course it was the fun stuff. Like I would much rather have given up broccoli and cauliflower <laughs> than chocolate and dairy, but, um, it is what it is. I also use something called gripe water that really helped my kids. Uh, I did yeah. too. Um, with Adele, she was very colicky. And that was one of the things that worked really well for her. Yeah. That, I don't know that that's going to help your eczema, but um, for any kid that also has tummy upset, because oftentimes it's inside and outside that might be able to help. So. This podcast is sponsored by Just Thrive. We love so many of their products. Honestly, don't even know <laughs> where to start sometimes. But our favorite has got to be their probiotic, which we've discussed approximately a bajillion times, perhaps. <laughs> yes. Just Thrive Probiotic is completely unique, both because of the science-backed and clinically proven strains in their formula, but also because of the validation trials Just Thrive is leading. I do love that third-party validation, and I'm thinking you might be itching to talk to our listeners a little bit more about how that works. I super am. So bacillus species, like Rhoda and Just Thrive, are what are called keystone species in the gut microbiome. 
That means that they're essential for creating a gut environment that's conducive for other probiotic species like lactobacillus and bifidobacterium to grow. And Just Thrive Probiotic includes four different bacillus strains, Bacillus subtilis, Bacillus clausi, Bacillus coagulans, and Bacillus indicus. And together, these four strains improve digestion, restore microbial diversity during infection, stabilize the gut microbiome, inhibit the growth of pathogenic species, and even produce highly bioavailable antioxidant carotenoids like lutein. So with all that, it's no surprise that Just Thrive Probiotic has proven results in clinical trials. In one trial, just supplementing with Just Thrive Probiotic and nothing else reduced leaky gut and inflammation, which is so exciting. It is legit. I honestly use and love it myself. And unlike other types of probiotics, which we can get from fermented foods like kombucha and sauerkraut, the natural source of the bacillus strains is dirt in Just Thrive. And I remember taking it for the first time and asking you, are you sure this isn't supposed to be refrigerated? Um, I know I'm not the only one who both is a little bit um, interested in the fact that it comes from dirt, but also super love the fact that it is so convenient to take. That's right. So Just Thrive Probiotic, we can get all of the benefits of soil-based organisms, uh, but no eating dirt is necessary. (laughs) Okay. Well, I also love that Just Thrive Probiotic is free of wheat, gluten, dairy, nuts, soy, salt, sugar, artificial colors and flavors, binders, fillers, allergens, and no GMOs. No bad stuff. You can get all of your Just Thrive products discounted at justthrivehealth.com and use the code THEWHOLEVIEW for 15% off at checkout. And that includes bundles and subscriptions, so definitely double up on your savings. Aaron asks, I've been strict AIP for almost seven years. That's a lot. That's like OG. Go, Erin. Um, I think that's about how long I've been as well. So <laughs> I've tried reintros periodically, although I have not been strict. Let me be very clear. So that's a long. That's a long time to be strict. Um, I've tried reintros periodically, and none have ever been successful. My symptoms years ago included digestive distress and interrupted sleep. And when I tried things last year, all I had was itchy eyes and once a headache. So maybe next time reintros will work. But I have MS. Is it possible that there are some people whose AI issues are serious enough that reintros aren't likely to succeed? Um, so generally, like when I'm, um, this is the a type of a topic that comes up every single session of the AIP lecture series. And um, definitely if you haven't thought about joining this next session that starts on September 13th, I uh, personally invite you to join it because this is a, it's a really good place for um, troubleshooting these types of, of challenges in a really supportive place where we can try a few things over the six months or six weeks and, and um, iterate a little bit, which is a little bit more than I can do right here. Um, but generally, um, I, I'm really strongly believe that reintroductions are very, very important. And I think it's easy to get into a fear of food um, place because that fear of food is earned, right? Like once we discover how, how important food was for driving our illness, it becomes very scary to make a wrong choice with reintroductions and especially having some reintroductions that didn't work then sort of like validates those fears. Um, but definitely I would recommend trying some new ones, making sure that you're sleeping well and that your stress is managed and all of those other pieces, nutrient density are all in place beforehand. 
and um, start with some different foods that you didn't try before. Um, you know, some, you know, I've been doing this um, email and newsletter series on the whys behind the eliminations and putting in a lot of statistics in terms of like how likely a food is to be uh, an IgG food reaction, for example. Um, and that's another way to go is to do food sensitivity testing and not try reintroducing any of the positives on that test, like focus on the things that are negative that are also in the phase one or phase two reintroductions. Um, but I definitely recommend trying some. It's, um, it's important for uh, dietary expansion. There are some really nutrient-dense foods that are great for the gut, gut microbiome that are eliminated. So if those do work for you, they actually can improve the overall quality of your diet um, and also great for just quality of life and, and all of that wonderfulness. Um, and then, you know, for, for still really like, no, nothing's working. Every single thing has a symptom. That means there's some underlying challenge that hasn't been addressed yet that needs to be addressed. Generally, that's like time to work with a functional or integrative medicine practitioner to dig deeper and look at things like hormone balances, um, HPA axis dis uh, dysregulation, uh, parasites or gut dysbiosis or chronic infections. Like generally, that means that something else is going on that really needs to be addressed in order to um, per, continue progressing on, on your health journey. Um, so there's, there's a lot that can be going on here, but my, my top line is reintroductions are great. Yes, they can be scary, but, um, when they go well, it's like the most wonderful thing. And when they go badly, then, um, that's good knowledge too, right? Then, you know, not to touch that thing and you can walk through life empowered with that knowledge. I want to reiterate what you said about um, sleep and stress. And I'll also say adding the extra nutrient dense foods that we talk about, like organ meat and seafood and vegetables, because when I reintroduced without really genuinely doing those things, it's not the same. And um, when I have added stress or my sleep gets worse, I'll start to see those foods become a little more iffy for me versus being okay. So I know if I'm going to have extra stress, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be okay with a little bit of paprika and something. Whereas normally, um, I can't do, I can't, I can't do nightshades, but I could do like a little bit of paprika without it really causing extra inflammation for me. So you might see um, a headache or something. And I wonder if you focused on, instead of so much the elimination part, because you've been doing that for so long, if you tried to think through how you could do some of the added things, the things that um, add to your health, it's also a mental shift that can break a little bit of what Sarah was talking about with, um, you know, the dysregulation and the thought process behind the food and the fear of it. So if you kind of approach things from the perspective of what I'm going to add to my life, um, it can break that, which is an additional stress and, and mental trigger that might help as well. So, okay. Um, Kristen has a question that I would like you to read, please. <laughs> Is it possible? I'll read it. It's fine. Is it possible to have a healthy gut microbiome without an ileocecal valve? I had a right hemicolectomy and have been having SIBO type symptoms ever since. P.S. I take the Just Thrive probiotic daily. Um, so the, the quick answer to your question is, I don't know. Um, there is something called short bowel syndrome, which is any kind of bowel resection. Um, that basically means there's not enough length in the, the large intestine, um, to be able to really, for all of the bacterial activity that would normally happen. And that basically is 
um, characterized by dysbiosis. Um, and other than taking large doses of probiotics that there's nothing else to do about it. Um, I would definitely talk to your doctor about adding a lactobacillus and bifidobacterium-based probiotic on top of just Thrive. So this would be the type of case where they would prescribe something like BSL-3, um, but there's other options uh, other than that one for, for a lactobacillus and bifidobacterium-based probiotic. Um, and then is it possible? I don't actually, I don't actually know the answer to that question. Yes. Okay, Laura said, I joined late, so apologies if this was asked late. Um, I don't think so. You're good. We have not talked about this at all. Um, any instances of weight gain post non-hospitalized COVID? I know a million variables can contribute to weight gain, but are there any studies pointing to COVID as a contributor? Any truth in some info about being prone to type 2 diabetes after COVID? Also, could be always there and only express with some other trigger? Uh, so I have not seen any studies that have looked at weight gain specifically. Um, and again, it's complex and not necessarily always a bad thing. So I think actually that next week's show is going to be about weight stigma. So stay tuned for that. Um, but the answer on the type 2 diabetes front is yes, there are, are some studies showing increased risk of type 2 diabetes following COVID and whether or not those were people who were pre-diabetic before that tipped over, like what the mechanism is that still needs to be figured out. So definitely insulin resistance could be part of it. Stress. I, I think all of our stress is really high. Um, I was having a conversation with a friend earlier, just saying like our baselines are all like right here and we're all at a spot where it's so hard to add one more thing. Like one more thing feels like, okay, now, now I just, it's the last draw. Camel's back is officially broken and now I can't do any of the things. So um, stress could be, could be happening and the stress that impacts um, food preferences, cravings, appetite, uh, sleep quality, and then sleep can impact um, the foods we're choosing. It can still be harder to get the same levels of activity that we were used to. So, I mean, I think Laura's thinking about it, right? Like thinking of it as a symptom of something else going on and not a problem in its own right. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very complex. There could be a lot going on. It would be pretty straightforward to go get a fasting insulin and blood sugar done and see if insulin resistance is is one of one of the things. Um, and other than that, I mean, I would say um, give yourself some grace. It's a pandemic, and um, you know the the other things, right? The eating a healthy diet and working on sleep and working on actively managing stress and um, living as active as a lifestyle as we can. Those decisions are more important than what the numbers on the scale. As always, mic drop, 100% agree. I also want to say that a lot of the symptoms that we've talked about as a result of COVID earlier in this show also are contributors to diabetes, things like, you know, depression and, other, you know, they lead to all the things that Sarah was talking about, right? So um, I'm not going to rule out that COVID isn't also somehow affecting a pancreas because we know that it affects the heart and the brain, the other thing. So whether it's direct or indirect, I think as Sarah said, the thing to do is to like give yourself grace and just do what you can to make the best decisions that you can without guilt or shame and just love and nourish your body. I know that there's a lot of people who avoid getting treatment 
or following um, protocols for type 2 diabetes because of the stigma associated with it and therefore like la, 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 I can't hear you I don't have it it's but that's actually you know much more harmful for your body and your health so um, if you think that you might be experiencing something definitely talking to a medical professional and um, getting it looked into is optimal Okay, Narissa apologizes for asking another question, but that's what you're here for, where you got your question in in time. So in episode 460, you had mentioned that studies recommend 10 billion CFU for probiotics, but Just Thrive only has three per capsule, and the bottle says to take one. Do you recommend taking three capsules a day? Uh, no. If I remember correctly, and I don't have the notes for 460 in front of me, the 10 billion CFU was for lactobacillus and bifidobacterium-based probiotics. Those have a much lower survivability through the gastrointestinal tract, which is why you need a bigger dose to have an effect, whereas the bacillus-based probiotics have a much have pretty much 100% survivability through the GI tract because they're heat resistant, resistant to acid. So they get there and they're just fine. Um, so, um, and then to add to that, the studies that just thrive has done is with their 3 billion per capsule dose. So no, I would definitely not recommend taking three per day. I think one per day is great. And then making sure that, uh, you're getting some fermented foods for those other strains. Awesome. Julie asks, what supplement and or foods are supportive for a teen with anxiety and issues going to sleep, going to sleep and staying asleep? We started with um, half a million milligram of melatonin two months ago and are wondering about L-thionine is how I think you pronounce that and 5-HTP. I'm pretty sure it's theanine, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. And 5-HTP. Yeah. Um, you would definitely want to talk to a healthcare provider before doing 5-HTP because that's a neurotransmitter. Um, L-theanine can be very helpful and it can be actually um, applied topically um, and can be very relaxing. Magnesium, um, as we covered in the magnesium show and vitamin C, as we covered in our, um, I think we it was about stress deficiencies stress deficiencies, nutrient deficiencies caused by stress. Um, so vitamin C can be very helpful. My 14 year old also has, well, I mean, let's just face it all the Valentines have anxiety. Um, but with my 14 year old, um, she takes, uh, just five probiotic and, um, Paleo Valley essential C complex. Um, and those have been really helpful for her. We eat a lot of fish. Otherwise fish oil would be another thing to look at. Um, and we like the Rosita cod liver oil. Um, and yeah, I would be, I would be careful, um, doing anything like GABA or 5-HTP that's directly manipulating neurotransmitters without talking with a healthcare provider first, for sure. Um, but L-theanine can be very calming and relaxing as can magnesium. Um, and you can do both of those topically before bed. Um, and then I, that, you know, the bigger thing to think about other than supplements is strategies to, to manage stress. So, um, can you find more space in your child's day, um, introduce them to the headspace app or the calm app. Both of those are excellent. I've used them both. Um, so a mindfulness practice can be extremely effective or studies done in teens, um, a pet cuddling with a pet. So our dog became our pet therapy dog this last year. Um, she was excellently timed because we all really needed those dog cuddles every day. Um, but again, just space, like time to, to be alone and in their own heads, hot baths, 
Um, you know, just thinking about the other strategies around supplementation, because generally supplements by themselves are never going to be enough. Um, the the lifestyle strategies are are really where the lifelong like growth actually happens because if your child has anxiety now it's not likely to just go away when they're 30. Um, so working on those strategies now talking with a therapist um, you know can be amazing because therapists have this whole toolbox of strategies that us lay people don't even know about um, and can pick and choose what's right for your for your teen so um, yeah I mean supplements can can help but definitely like look at the look at the low-hanging fruit um in terms of strategies for stress management the other one that i would add is i didn't hear you mention sarah and this is a personal choice as a parent and i would definitely recommend that you're looking at a brand that is testing to be thc free but cbd is incredibly helpful for anxiety as well um my kids take uh, the ones with anxiety, take a CBD melatonin combined pill before bed uh, because we find um, that the twilight hours, the twilight um, anxiety is often um, the worst for people, right? And that is that time when you are quiet and you are thinking with your thoughts. So while some kids might do better with some space, others might feel really overwhelmed when they have space and their thoughts come in and their worries come in. And so um, working with a professional to kind of of get to the root of what those are will be helpful. And I would also strongly suggest CBT therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, to work with some of those coping strategies that will help with your child. Um, it could be as simple as I need a stuffed animal. It could be identifying, um, you heard about tapping and different things like that. Those are all different things. Drinking a cold cup of water, like it's, it's basically helping your body have a physical reaction to cope with what you're feeling and to kind of redirect your feelings in a different sort of way. So um, I have a lot of experience with this. I have, um, I've been a treatment foster parent through a global pandemic with four different kids. And my most recent um, has, you know, we've done a lot of work around the trauma that they've experienced. So um, I will say a hundred percent, like I would focus on those things more than I would focus on the supplement because kiddo wants nothing but mac and cheese and hot dogs and mashed potatoes. Like they're not getting their nutrients, but we're making a, a tremendous progress on the um, behavioral side so that they are more open to the idea of eating more of variety. When you are in that Maslow's hierarchy of anxiety, like you don't care about nutrients because you feel like you're running for your life. So just kind of remember to have empathy for where they are in terms of kind of, you know, their stress and anxieties and have a realistic expectation that, you know, tweaking supplements for them might not be where they are and it might be where you are, but they might have different needs and a professional that they can vent to, um, that they really identify with and can bond with in some sort of way is really helpful. Um, it's, it's hard to do that virtually. I've seen a huge improvement in our home being able to work with professionals um, where they have human interaction of some kind, if you can figure that out. So, but if not, virtual and, and online is awesome. I just know that um, whatever you can do to make it work, that's, that's what the motto is. So, um, Okay, I noticed that you no longer suggest branch basics. I think Jean might be asking me this because I think, um, anyway, I'm not going <laughs> to guess as to the assumptions. Did you find something that you liked more or did the company do something um, which you didn't feel comfortable? 
I will say I chose my partners for 2021 very carefully with a lot of different factors in mind, including um, different personal values and beliefs that I had, as well as the products that I was genuinely using and saw performance with. And I decided to partner with Force of Nature this year because I liked that they had EPA certification of virus being killed and could work in a similar way to being um, a product that I could use in a variety of surfaces in different sort of way. Um, I also found that I got the results that I was looking for. Um, so for example, with Branch Basics, like our laundry was not something that we were getting like the stain removal and different kinds of things that we wanted. And so we found like a different brand that did do that for us um, with drops. Um, I don't know if, if you have anything else to add to that, Sarah. I, I'm still using branch basics. Yeah. <laughs> so um, Julie says, love all the Delta questions. Thank you. With the Delta variant, we see an increase in pediatric cases in the United States because there are more cases in our community. Are we seeing more serious illness in kids infected with the Delta variant? I have a 10-year-old with asthma going back to school where masks are recommended but not required. Thank you. Um, so at this point, it's unclear uh, whether the increased um, hospitalizations in children is due to Delta being more severe in children or just the increase in cases. That is not something that um, we have very good data to, to really be able to nail down yet. Um, so the, the direct answer to the question is unknown. Um, I definitely think that um, asthma is one of the conditions that children are considered at higher risk. Um, so I would definitely recommend that it, even if not all of the kids can be masked, um, that your child masks um, at school. And I can tell you that for my 11-year-old, um, I actually got N95s for her to wear at school. Um, they're actually more comfortable than you think because the, the cone kind of holds them away from the mouth and they, they provide a really good seal around the mouth. Um, and actually I should clarify, I got the KN95s, um, which are the same mask, but not medical grade. So that basically the, just the difference is sterilization. Um, and, uh, and that's how, that's how we're navigating the risk in a school where masks are optional. And I will say that the masks, my vaccinated teenagers are choosing to wear are less, um, protective than the masks that I told my 11 year old he needed to wear. Um, so they're all wearing masks because it's required in their schools, but the older ones wanted to wear ones that were more comfortable for them to be in school all day. They're vaccinated. 77% of children 12 and above in our county are vaccinated and masks are required by everyone. So I felt comfortable with that. Uh, but again, this is all you know, decisions that you need to make as a parent. So, okay, last question. Um, and it's Felicia. And it is Felicia. 
Felicia says, adding on to, I think, Wendy's question, can you respond specifically regarding the spike protein? My dad, who's unvaccinated, keeps talking about how we know it is impacting vaccinated people, but he can't explain to me how. I'm sorry if this was partially answered just now, but could you debunk what they're saying regarding the spike protein specifically? And I know that Carissa will put a link in the show notes to the myth-busting episode we did on this, which I would highly recommend listening to. And hi, Olivia, as well. Okay, uh, go ahead, Sarah. So the the quick answer is, so the, the myth is that the spike protein that our cells make when we get the vaccine uh, are circulating through our body and binding with ACE2 receptors and causing all kinds of dysregulation of the renin-angiotensin system, although nobody actually uses the word renin-angiotensin system because they don't actually know what they're talking about because they're completely wrong, because... There's a small modification on the mRNA instructions for making the spike protein that make it membrane bound. So when our cells make the spike protein, it is both stabilized in its formation before it binds to ACE2 receptors so that it looks like the virus to our immune system. And then it is what it's added is something called a transmembrane anchor. So the spike protein basically goes into the cell membrane. So the spike is on the outside of the cell, but it has this anchor holding it to the cell membrane. So it can't actually get into the circulation and it can't actually get to an ACE2 receptor to bind to it. So um, that is the answer for your unvaccinated father that the spike protein that we make in response to the vaccines does not actually get into our blood. It's only on the cells that are taking in the mRNA. Okay. Thank you so much for everyone who has watched this back. I'm going to um, turn off the recording. And if you heard this as a podcast, I want to remind you, you can join our Patreon fam and ask these questions and have access to us. We would love to welcome you. Um, and thanks everybody for being here and listening. Thank you so much for listening to our show. And if you enjoyed this, we think that you would really enjoy our Patreon. I know a lot of our listeners don't know what Patreon is, and hopefully you have a better understanding now. Um, it's just a second show we record every week, and you get not just Q&As like this special one, but also a follow-on of what we really think after each episode. Um what did you think, Sarah? <laughs> I enjoyed this so much. And um, I really want to thank you for talking me into it because it was just such a wonderful way to connect with our Patreon family, but also I think really, really plug into what's on everyone's minds right now. So what, you know, what we've just shared is about half of the questions that we actually answered during our live Q&A with our Patreon family. And I think it was just really interesting to just kind of see where everybody's at because it helps us, I think, really reflect on how we can make this podcast even better, make the other resources that we create even better to really you know, maximize the beneficial impact that we can have in people's lives. And we got to see people's faces at the end. That was super fun. So if this was fun for you or if you 
just want to support us and get the benefit of an additional bonus, um, win-win situation, definitely pop over to patreon.com slash the whole view, and you'll be able to get access to the full episode as well as all of our previous episodes um, following each show. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. We love providing the Whole View podcast for you as a free resource. You can support the show by using the links and codes we share in our podcast. And we love to read your reviews and chats wherever you listen. And don't forget to share our podcast with your friends and family. Speaking of chat, did you know that you can get exclusive behind-the-scenes content on Patreon? When you support us with your Patreon membership, you get access to live Q&As and weekly bonus audio. But they're not for kids' ears because our bonus content is explicit. You can also stay in touch with us via our social media channels. I'm at Real Everything Blog. And I'm at The Paleo Mom. And we've got more great resources on our websites and in our newsletters.